Welcome to Wetwire, episode 16, American Griper. I'm Sean Andes. And I'm Julian Paul Butt. We're sort of interrupting our Fashboy summer series again, a little bit at least. We're not explicitly talking about Christian nationalists or white supremacists, but there's still probably going to be plenty of crossover. But before we start, I want to give a shout out to the host of another show. I met Hannah while I was out the other day, and she was sitting at the end of uh, the table that we're, we were all sharing, a big group table, reading, reading Helter Skelter. So, of course, you have to talk to somebody in public when they're reading that book. <laughs> and it turns out that she was doing research for an upcoming episode for her own show. She co-hosts the True Crime Tea Hour with her sister. And you can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. Basically, all the places you'd expect to find a podcast. I listened to six or seven episodes of it yesterday, and it is pretty damn good. I've listened to a lot of true crime podcasts in the past, and these two have a really nice vibe. They're very thorough. They are incredibly sensitive to the individuals in these cases. It doesn't come off as just ghoulishness in, in the way that some some shows can. Some kind of exploitation of the horror is some of the times how these come off. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, it, can, it can come off as incredibly exploitive, and they don't. So I happened to mention while we were talking that I'm working on an episode for this show where we're going to be talking about a mass murder that took place at the beginning of the year and its relation to the Manosphere and some online men's groups. So I dropped the possibility, at least, of a potential crossover between our show's for, for this topic, because it seems like it, uh, it covers both areas. There was a crime, and there was also a lot of crazy nonsense that went along with it that we like to talk about. So it seemed maybe, maybe they can handle the crime part, and we can, we handle, can handle the bad ideas. We can handle the, the, the terrible ideas part. So yes, the manosphere is in the group of terrible ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely, go listen to the True Crime Tea Hour. For this episode, we'll be entering the world of film, or at least one man's view of whom he thinks that industry should serve. And that man is Adam Carrington. I would be completely surprised if that's a name that anybody listening has ever heard before, unless you happened to have received a Christian education in the last couple of years in Michigan. Or you might have heard of it if you're also mucking around the same conservative Christian sewers where I often mine for content. Well, funny enough, it's a it's a it's a fictional character in a in a recent series, uh, the uh, the the soap opera Dynasty. That is not recent. That was like twenty. That was like thirty, forty years ago. <laughs> well, no, there's a reboot. But the character is from a long time ago. These are the things you discover when you research somebody new. <laughs> you, you find out that he was a, a frequent character on the old soap opera Dynasty. And then you also learn from your co-host right on the fly that it's been rebooted because that's what we need. <laughs> and that's also how you find out one of us is a millennial and the other is Gen X. Yikes. <laughs> Carrington, the real one, not the Dynasty character, is an associate professor of politics at Hillsdale and is also a man of exceptionally strong beliefs. On the pages of The American Spectator and The Washington Examiner, he's celebrated our collective return to a nation of religious liberties as they're envisioned by Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court. 
He considers critical race theory to be inherently illiberal, believes that any effort to reduce the burden of student loan debt is immoral in its heart, and that pornography doesn't deserve free speech protections. He's written articles on all of those topics. I'm not going to talk about them any further, and if you find them, then you'll see what I mean. Predictably, Carrington also has some words for the darkest heart of impropriety, Hollywood. But surprisingly, Carrington isn't taking issue with the films that Hollywood does make. His problem is that they're not making enough of the kind of movies that he wants to watch. This is Carrington writing in The American Spectator. Clocking in at 72 verses, Psalm 78 is one of the longest in the Jewish and Christian Psalters. At great length, it recalls the story of the Hebrew nation. Focusing especially on the special covenantal relationship between the Jewish people and God. Psalm 78 doesn't merely recount a list of facts, it displays Israel's past for a purpose, to say who they are and who they should strive to be. Americans show a consistent hunger for reflecting on our own grand story. We find it in the continued success of books on our founders. We also see it in a recent Echelon Insights poll which found that Americans, by wide margins, want to see more historical and patriotic films. As soon as I read that introduction to his article, I knew immediately that I found somebody that was entirely deserving of being dragged. <laughs> when you start off your article with a, a, a Christian Old Testament reference and then immediately follow that by leaning on the authority of some survey, he doesn't even talk about what the findings of the survey were. He just links to it as if that's enough. That's just proof right there, evidence. A survey was done. It's really related to this sort of credentialism that folks similar to Carrington rely upon, which is this idea of, well, as long as I'm referencing something, it doesn't matter what the something is. It doesn't matter. I'm just refer no. referencing a thing and you're not going to look it up and don't worry about that. But I'm referencing a thing, so shut up and believe me. Uh, a lot of people are saying... That's it. <laughs> a lot of people are saying that people want to watch more historical and patriotic movies. That was the line that Trump, I'm sorry, that, that Fox News has used for an eternity. No, Trump said it all and the Trump, time, too. And then Trump, Trump really just kind of consolidated it into saying, hey, people say. A lot of people are saying. A lot of people are saying. Yeah, something else that, that you can notice here, too, is that he's drawing this equivalency between the stories of the Jews and their exile in the Old Testament, the Torah, and the founding of the country. <laughs> Our own grand story, he says. So yeah, I, I didn't, uh, I, I wasn't really going out to find Christian nationalist stuff, but it found me. This is another example of another Christian nationalist citing a passage that's barely related to what he was saying. And... It's used to lend the credibility that at least has a profound sounding thing to it, to whatever they're saying, but it doesn't add any clarity. And if we're going to take Psalms 78, let's go through 9 to 11, at least from the King James Version. This is Jules's insistence right here. I, I, this was I, not in my script. I, I am the resident biblical scholar. That was a joke. <laughs> it was only a joke. I didn't mean for you to run with it. And yet, here I am. Yeah, but for how long? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get tired of it pretty quick, honestly. <laughs> Nine, 
The men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. 10. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. 11. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. So it actually is relevant. <laughs> as ridiculous as it, as, as it is to keep quoting from whatever verse some, some guy is talking about. And it's always guys. <laughs> well, this is, this is where Jules is about to jump the shark. <laughs> Listen. Fonzie was a great actor, and uh, I gotta say, that was probably a good episode. It it's was just not a good episode. episode. It is literally the perfect, the, the, <laughs> it is the dictionary example of when a, a show, when a long-running series just goes terrible. Oh, is that where the phrase comes from? That is literally where it comes I know, from. I know, I know it is. I'm God. kidding. Um, but the, the mention of Covenant, we've been talking about Christian nationalists for the past handful of episodes. And that specific term keeps fucking jumping out at me. Every time that I hear somebody talk about a covenant with God, I think of the, the movie Yes Man with Jim Carrey and Zoe Deschanel is in it. Terrence Stamp, who was in 80s and 90s film with his uh, white hair buzz cut as the villain in so many different excellent films. He's playing a self-help guru and a cult leader, which seems oddly excellent for this. Terrence uses the word covenant in a plot moment during the film when Jim Carrey playing Carl, where, where uh, he, he's kind of embarrassing Terrence in front of his audience and Terrence needs to do something dramatic. So he uses the word covenant and that becomes a key plot device for the rest of the film. Towards the end of the film, around the, the height of the plot, Terrence reveals to him that he was just riffing and he needed to pick something. So he just said, I'm you're making a covenant with yourself. That's exactly what Carrington really wants is somebody like Terrence, who's just kind of riffing to say, you need to have a covenant. That word is so important to him in the same way that you have that dramatic language that brings in whatever it is that you're saying to the forefront of being important and noble and wise and by connecting it to something that sounds more profound than it really is. I think of this film every time I hear that word covenant, but in the same way that, that we have Carrington describing the Psalms at the beginning of this. It's all about sounding really profound. And in reality, they're not saying anything. They're talking about some films that they like and films that they don't like. They're drawing it all together because they're just riffing. The, the echelon poll that Carrington's citing included the question, Generally speaking, would you like to see more movies or fewer movies with the following themes? Then it gave a series of film themes to respond to. The two themes that Carrington is referencing are movies based on real-life events and patriotic movies. The survey found that 53% are really excited about historical films, and 42% want more patriotic movies. The survey also found that among respondents, 33% thought we had just the right amount of historical films, and 32% thought the same about patriotic ones. The problem with surveys in general is that the data can be read to support just about any conclusion that you want. 
We can already assume that Carrington wants to see more films about the Old Testament and how Moses led the Jews to America. And, and again, we're barely into this episode and already it's getting Christian nationalist again. We spent the whole mass shootings episode talking about how statistics are ma manipulated in discussion to draw whatever conclusion that you want. And we know that Carrington already has a position. He does not need numbers and no one should ever give him any. <laughs> <laughs> the survey doesn't even make a case for his point. It just suggests that some people like historical, historical dramas. We already know this from Titanic, which won 125 awards and 83 nominations. Spoiler alert, the, uh, the boat sinks in the end. I don't know if you know that, Sean. It, it goes down at the end of the film. I don't think I ever saw it. <laughs> Another way we could look at the survey would be to combine the categories current production is about right, somewhat fewer, and much fewer movies. Basically, everything that isn't an affirmative. And then we should find, and find should be in quotes here, we would find that 49% of respondents think we already have enough or we have too many patriotic movies already. So you can tilt the whole thing exactly the other direction, which means it's basically worthless. It doesn't even say anything. And the survey results from this Echelon poll also don't give any details about how the data was collected. All we know is that the sample size was a little over a thousand people who were considered likely to vote. And that is absolutely enough stats for this early in the episode. Basically, just don't <laughs> believe the numbers on a chart just until you've really looked at it closely. And maybe not even then. I'll also add the survey results in the show notes in case anyone's interested in looking for themselves. Carrington continues. Our country craves these stories for the same reason the ancient Israelites desired to put their historical narrative to song. Stories matter greatly for both the present and the future of any political community. By them, we engage in continual acts of self-definition. They help form us as a coherent community of citizens. At their best, films can restate these essential stories, renew communal bonds, and positively reform the principles and practices of viewers. Yet we know that many films fall far short on these goals. Birth of a Nation ends by celebrating the Ku Klux Klan's <laughs> redemption of the post-Reconstruction South. Oh. Reds worships at the altar of Marx and communism and pines for its adoption in the United States. First, future American films should restate America's story. We should come out of the theater knowing that story better. <laughs> wow. I really... <laughs> what 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 version? Uh, Last of the Mohicans? Pocahontas? I mean, what does he does he want John Smith to marry the ten year old again? Uh, I, like what which, is he, what is he talking is about? He here? talking about it, it? I'm gonna keep going because we could get totally bogged down in, in every one of these little things. But just keep in mind that he really views films in a positive light when they are at their best, in his words. But for some people, Birth of a Nation was films at its best. That was a movie at film's best for, for a group of people. For a lot of people who don't even know that that was film at its best, who've never seen it, but see the effects that they really like from it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I doubt people that, I don't know, I, don't, I bet most people aren't going to talk about it strongly unless they've seen it. Because it doesn't really do much other than make you feel good about yourself if you're already a racist. That's, yeah. that's basically what it's helping with. And Reds is a whole separate story because that's actually a very interesting film that 
dives deeply into some of these key figures at the, at the beginning of the 20th century who were involved in revolutionary politics in the United States. It's not something that has some sort of superficial communism is good push the entire time. In fact, that's almost, that's just the, their attitudes toward socialism specifically were largely just in response to the need they saw to organize labor because workers were being abused by their employers. That's where all that came from. It's, it's so much more complicated than the way that he presents it. But that, that's just the beauty of Carrington. That's, you, you get complicated things just distilled down into bullet points that no longer represent reality in any way whatsoever. Well, importantly, he, his argument includes Birth of a Nation. He makes a passing critique of it at the ending because the KKK were triumphant and it's some sort of a, a glory to the KKK at the ending. But it really wasn't just at the ending. I don't think he's really talking about that. I mean, he, I don't think he's. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm not gonna assume that he's specifically a, a racist and he likes the movie other than how it ends. I don't think that's what he's saying. No, and actually, on that note, really, what I found about him is that I mean, I, I think that's a misuse of the word "ends" in the middle of his sentence. That he could just have removed that, and that said, "Birth of a Nation" celebrates the Ku Klux Klan's redemption. I think you're correct. I think you're correct. And I honestly, I, I kind of think that this guy is really just a standard conservative. I mean, pre pre present day morphation. Uh, uh, that's not that's not that's not a uh, get to the conclusion so early. <laughs> all right. So let, I'll, I'll skip what I was just about to say. And I'll yeah, just that belongs at the end. All right. So. In his article, he mentions Birth of a Nation, which I think is important because Birth of a Nation is a film that's seen as a seminal work that contributes to the overall ideology of the United States in segregation throughout the 20th century. It has been seen as pivotal in the United States for its contribution to the culture of white nationalism and all right, you know what? Let's just cut the whole fucking thing. <laughs> because, it, no, you're right. You're right, Sean, because it, it, it kind of like it preempts the conclusion a it, little it, bit. It jumps right over the middle to the conclusion. <laughs> it jumps to the conclusion too much. It's too early. Ah, But I just I, I wanted to get at the, the that point of the birth of a nation being so seminal because he happens to mention that one. He's mentioning birth of a nation because he's coming up with. The, he he needs a he needs an extreme example of not all movies about America are good. That not all movies are are what this is, like even movies that have all of this history and have had all of this influence. They're not necessarily the kind of movies I think we should be making in the future. So he picked the most far out extreme example that he could come up with, which was Birth of a Nation. But see, to me, what he's saying isn't about. Like holding up that movie as an example or something, he's he's just trying to say that we need patriotic movies, but not that kind of patriotism. And he also wants patriotic movies about American history, but not like the movie Reds either, which he includes right next, you know, in the next part of that series. Right. You know, so he doesn't want movies about KKK. He doesn't want movies about socialists or communists or Soviet sympathizers or Bolshevik sympathizers at that point. He wants good old-fashioned, heartwarming American stories about how great this country is and how we've never done anything wrong. 
you know. Yeah. And actually, that's even an ex- that kind of a characterization of him. It's like he does, he he doesn't he gives lip service at least to the idea that we we shouldn't ignore the bad parts, but he's really into the good parts. Right. All right. No, that's fine. So uh, most well, of this, come, I'm going to have to leave in there. And we're going to see how this experiment in in disassembling an article is actually going to work. <laughs> this might be a wet wired lost episode. <laughs> no, 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 it'll be good. <laughs> it's, oh, it's not, though. It's so much more complicated when you do the editing. Back to the article. Survey after survey reveals an alarming number of Americans don't know their history. What they don't pick up in the classroom, they can, for good or ill, obtain in the cinema. Consider how many Americans know the second half of the 20th century through Forrest Gump. (laughs) And whose view of the settling of the frontier wasn't at least partially formed by the genre of the American Western. All right. I'm not going to bore anybody with more stats. Well, we're just going to leave that to, to Carrington to sort of, you know, again, cite authority and then drop two more links to surveys. He doesn't even name them. He just says survey hyperlink after survey, another hyperlink. I looked at them They're Yeah. Read the article. Yeah. And, and of course, the Old West obviously was just all gunfights, John Wayne and High Plains drifters, right? Yeah. If we want some good examples of this, we, we could look at uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, the uh, remarkably accurate historical fiction uh, by Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles. And actually, Mel B- Blazing Saddles was awesome because when they're, when they're out on the plains in that one scene, you have Gene Wilder talking, like they come across all these American Indians and they're all speaking Yiddish. Because at that point in Hollywood, <laughs> it was very common for Jewish actors to get roles playing American Indians. And and you you even had a lot of Native Americans played in in the spaghetti westerns by Italians. Yeah, years later, when when Sergio Leone was filming uh, westerns in Italy, it was all Italians playing playing the Mexicans and American Indians. And even even the uh, the actor who played the the crying Indian in that ad, I want to say it was in the seventies, like seventy eight or something like that. Oh, the one about don't don't litter. Don't litter. He was Italian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, just just throw them all in there. This uh, th- this part of uh, of Carrington's article reminds me exactly of this subreddit that I saw a while back from somebody who was qu- who was uh, quote looking for books about the four hundred year American Indian War that aren't woke unquote. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what does the guy even mean by that? Like I, I, I want you know I want wounded knee from the general's perspective. Uh, how are we going to talk about all this forced displacement of an entire ethnicity of people without being woke in this guy's terms? The Indian Removal Act. I mean, which part is is it is it the part where where we're looking at uh, the Buffalo Soldiers? Second, these films should renew. Not only telling us about ourselves, but showing us how to be better Americans. Sergeant York illustrates how Christianity and the defense of one's country can coexist. A fictional story like the Western Shane showcases families and homesteads as the foundation of America's political community. So he's just talking about movies at this point. That's that's not that's those aren't things that actually those aren't people that really lived. I mean, there were people probably maybe like them. Obviously, we have a whole history of homesteading and. Again, back to the displacement of American Indians. 
those lands weren't just unoccupied. People lived there. They just didn't live the way we thought they we, we, that they should be living. And white people at that point just thought they could do it better. So they had the right to move them. Like that, that's, that's essentially manifest destiny. Both reveal the virtues of Americans forged by their country and serving the public good from which they have benefited. They also reveal vices we must avoid lest we face the undermining of our character and thereby our safety, morality, and prosperity. Because that's the real problem. It's vices. If all those people through history in the, in the U.S. had just sucked it up and got on with the program, they would have realized it was all for the public good. So being better Americans means more Jesus and less accountability for atrocities. <laughs> and, and while we're at it, why don't we just throw in the grapes of wrath? That's about things that actually happened. Yeah. That's about, I mean, it's, it's a fictionalized account, but it's, it's, a lot more, it's a, a lot more attached to real historical events than the movie fucking Shane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, and then we get to talk about, with Grapes of Wrath, we get to talk about some of the other farmers, like the, the Jode family and all the other people during the Great Depression who got completely fucked over when agriculture was being transformed into an industry. And then how they were later robbed and abused by their employers when they were forced to take, you know, just whatever job was available. And a bunch of them died along the way on that trip to California when they, when they had to leave Oklahoma. We're talking about a period of time when unions across the United States were never more prevalent, or at least on the rise. Yeah, we can tie this right back in. The way that Carrington ignores the mo the movie Reds and just labels it as, you know, communist propaganda or something like that. The way that he just ignored that is is exactly the uh, is for exactly the same reasons that those people were organizing in the first place. He doesn't think that that those stories are important. Those hardships are important. He doesn't think any of that stuff is valuable. But that's exactly what the characters in that movie he's completely dismissed were dedicating their lives to. Third, film should reveal the value of restoration. Americans have lived under the ideals of equality, justice, and liberty since before our founding. We have constantly striven to realize them, imperfectly, and thus perpetually. Therefore, films that highlight restoration build off of renewal. The best on-screen treatments of slavery and race accomplish this goal. We learn from Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird how to stand up for human equality, regardless of a person's skin color. We see the bravery of the men of the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment, one of the earliest all-black regiments in the Civil War, through glory. These films show America's noble striving. Doing so does not ignore our ills, but it does not treat America as a country inherently wicked and doomed by its past. All right, so he is completely triggered by the 1619 Project. It's so incredibly triggered. clear. <laughs> because he's... All right, Snowflake. <laughs> Both of these movies, I, no problem. I, I don't have any issue with either of these films. I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird, great story. I, I remember the film fondly from when I was a kid. I had to read it in school like everybody else did. We, when, when we were studying the Civil War, we, we had to watch Glory. I mean, our history, our history teacher decided that that was a good, you know, that was a good use of class time to watch that film. But we have to remember that when we're talking about people telling stories with their own voices and the value of people being able to tell their own stories, the, neither of these are, are suitable. Like, yeah, Denzel Washington's in Glory. 
But Matthew Broderick is the unit commander. You know, it's a white guy in charge of the unit. And yes, that is historically accurate. But it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't put it on par with stories told by people in their own voices. And to kill a mockingbird, we have a white lawyer talking about equality in this case. Yeah. That's because we're not allowed to listen to black people in 1962. You know, if be, like even though civil rights is becoming an enormous movement in the United States, the movie that, that Carrington cites is To Kill a Mockingbird. He does mention Selma later. <laughs> <laughs> Films don't matter so much because they comprise the only means of restatement, renewal, and restoration. Speeches such as Lincoln's Gettysburg Address or Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream and written statements like the Declaration of Independence also serve this purpose. We should continue to value these precious documents, but good stories and film accomplish the same goal in a particularly powerful way. People tire of others preaching at them. Thus, they tend to reject movies that berate them with the principles a filmmaker says they should think. This underscores why films like Crash had so little staying power. To be sure, hokey patriotism bereft of the real challenges of America's past, present, and future won't make the cut either. I, I don't know what point he's trying to make at the end here. I guess it's, I like movies, but books are good too. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what, he's, what exactly he's talking about. Other than, you know, like singling out the movie Crash, you know, for some reason, because he didn't like something about it. I mean, I don't want to mind read here. He didn't say what he didn't like. He just said that it was basically preachy. I don't think that's a mischaracterization. Yeah, he said people tire of others preaching at them. Around that time, it, w it would have been 2004, I was working at a book and film and rental store, and Crash was in, you know, across the shelves at that time. It won Best Picture the year the, that year. Uh, there's that scene in Clerks where the guy says, I want to go rent a film. Let me your car. And, and the other character says... You work at a video store. And he says, I work at a shitty video store. <laughs> and, and there's a part where he cuts to the scene where people are talking about the movies that they're excited to see. And one of them says, ooh, Navy Seals. That's the kind hey, of fucking film that this guy movie. wants. That's the kind of patriotic <laughs> shit that this guy is into. Carrington has a sentiment that's shared by Christian nationalists and Republicans in the U.S. right now. Through local control of school boards, city councils, and other apparatuses of the state, there is a proliferation of book bans, even bans on ideas that can be discussed in school, even words that can be used. There is no sense of irony as politicians say book burning would be a good idea. Granted, liberals also have participated in recent years in what reactionaries call cancel culture. To that point, that's what talking heads like Tucker Carlson rail against as they decry the suppression from the left while encouraging bans of literature and films that paint LGBTQ plus people in a positive light or which address race in any way. And this is exactly along the lines of what Carrington is talking about. He says people don't like being preached at, but that's exactly what goes on when, when you have somebody like Tucker Carlson telling you what's right and wrong. That's literally telling you what to think. The examples that he uses, you know, the Gettysburg Address and MLK's I Have a Dream speech are both literally a guy telling everyone else what's right and what's not. So just because you strongly agree with the sentiment doesn't mean it isn't preaching. That isn't necessarily a bad term. The article continues. Instead, effective films tell a story instead of dictating the audience's thoughts. 
In so doing, they do not ignore principles of justice, equality, and human liberty. At their best, they do not reject the documents of Lincoln, King, and Jefferson. They make their principles live, just like in Navy SEALs. <laughs> we see what justice looks like, or green zone. <laughs> <laughs> we see what justice looks like in practice. We see the fight for equality and the cost of liberty as displayed in human, especially American, experiences. Whether giving us accounts of Americans, ordinary or extraordinary, real or fictional, films can tell us who we are with nuance and heart. There's an old episode of Leave it to Beaver where he, he, he doesn't uh, read Three Musketeers in time for his book report, so he watches <laughs> the movie. And so, of course, you know, uh, the, the teacher can't understand why he's describing the scene where the Three Musketeers are throwing pies at each other. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. That, that's, that's the, those are the kinds of movies that end up slipping through when we decide that, that, that they're, they're going to be a stand-in for knowledge of American history. If you're learning about the second half of the 20th century from Forrest Gump, <laughs> that's what's going on here. That's, that is our problem. That, that's, that's, why, that's why everything is falling apart. And I don't think anybody even really was. I think that anybody who caught those references or was alive at the time was recognizing what it was that was being referenced throughout Forrest Gump. But I don't think it would have meant anything to anybody if they didn't already know the historical context. It's, it's, I, I, almost, I think of Forrest Gump in, that, in all those historical references like... All those films that are presently made for children that have all the adult jokes. This is where this is where it gets kind of good. The current success of Top Gun Maverick shows this point. It does not preach tropes of social commentary. The film's exhilarating action displays the skill, dedication, and bravery of America's top pilots. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to get. I don't want to do a breakdown of Top Gun Maverick, but. That's not what goes on in that movie at all. It's absolutely preaching tropes of social commentary, specifically military industrial Hollywood complex commentary, because one of the main hinge points in the film is that they're trying to phase out the fighter pilot program because they're obsolete. It's a world of drones now, and there's no this idea of air-to-air -air combat and dogfights and basically all the shit that makes those movies spectacular and pretty fun to watch is becoming not a part of actual warfare in any way whatsoever. I mean, when's the last time there was any real air-to-air -air combat in, a, in, in any conflict? I mean, not I can much. imagine that it has been a decades one since there were any meaningful dogfights. There's going to be a few one-offs, but I think you have to look back to, like, Korea or, you know, maybe a couple of instances with some U.S. pilots um, facing off against Chinese pilots during Vietnam, you know. But these were not driving the, the, the direction that the war took. These were just these sensational things, these blips that took place. They didn't determine how the U.S. was going to lose in Vietnam. They just were things that happened. This whole thing is hinging on the movie arguing for a style of warfare, which basically equals into military expenses and, you know, more and more purchases that the U.S. Air Force has already said they don't want of fighter jets that they don't use. They don't have any use for these things. 
everything has changed. This movie is sensationalizing something that doesn't even exist. Mav, tally two, five o'clock low. What do we do? Okay, listen, just be cool. If they knew who we were, we'd be dead already. Well, here they come. What's your plan? Let's put your mask on. Remember, we're on the same team. Just wave and smile. Just wave and smile. What's that signal? What's he saying? Yeah, no idea. I have no idea what he's saying. What about that one? Any idea? I've never seen that one either. Shit. His wingman is moving into a weapons envelope. All right, listen up. When I tell you, you grab those rings above your head. That's the ejection handle. Mav, can we outrun these guys? Not their missiles and guns. Then it's a dogfight. An F-14? Against fifth-gen fighters? It's not the plane. It's the pilot. You'd go after him if I wasn't here. But you are here. Come on, Mav. Don't think. Just do. So, yeah, it's preaching tropes of social commentary. It's telling us how we're supposed to think about this stuff. It just happens to be something he likes. Carrington gets a hard-on for Tom Cruise in a leather jacket, like riding the motorcycle and then jumping into the fighter jet and somehow finding themselves in a conflict with Iran, destroying a nuclear reactor, basically doing a desert scene recreation of the rebels in The Empire Strikes Back. It would be just as good to look at Rebels Without a Cause for the same sort of excitement and thrill and accuracy. Well, we, we, we can talk about um, uh, with the, the Wild Ones. And, the and Wild see Ones. That, see that as an accurate portrayal of the Hells Angels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with, with, with Marlon Brando cruising around on a leather jacket harassing shopkeeps. <laughs> <laughs> this fictionalized notion of having some sort of a hero, typically a dude, who is like the Red Baron in World War I. This person absolutely did exist, and they were well-known for dogfights in World War I. They were used, at least at that time, as a propaganda piece. That the Red Baron was this, this hero of the skies, granted for a different country, but that's the same thing that Carrington is trying to do here, is... Who, who are you sympathizing with right now? I'm not sympathizing with anybody. I'm saying that... The Kaiser? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that the, the, that the Red Baron was used as, as the hero of the skies, the, the big ace of the skies. But that's my point. We don't have a hero of the skies. And that's why because we there need are no Tom fights Cruise. in the skies. <laughs> but it's not, but it, there are no fights in the skies. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. Even even right now, and in, in with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we did the same thing with the ghost of Kiev. Yeah. It was just made up. It was just a fictional hero. 
Top Gun Ukraine. <laughs> so, like I said, I didn't want to. I I I I tried not to break down Maverick, but the, you kind of have to talk about some of this stuff just just to talk about how full of shit this guy is. Carrington doesn't spend much time breaking down Top Gun Maverick either, but he does link to another American Spectator piece, this time by Bruce Bauer. For me, the most touching thing about the movie is this. In the original, Maverick wore a bomber jacket handed down from his father with U.S., U.N., Japanese, and Taiwanese flag patches on the back. In 2019, when the sequel was originally scheduled for release, a trailer showed him wearing the same jacket from 1986, but with the flags of those two Pacific allies missing, an apparent sop to Beijing. Well, the Japanese and Taiwanese flag patches have been restored in the film's final cut with two interesting consequences. First, the picture, so far at least, has no release date in China. Second, according to Vice, at the movie premiere in Taiwan, the audiences cheered and clapped at the unexpected sight of their national flag. What happened? The restoration of the two flags an extremely minor detail in the scheme of things, is entirely out of character for the Hollywood studios, whose top priority these days is kowtowing to China. Might it be the, that Cruz himself pushed the issue? If that's the case, he's a hero not just on celluloid, but in real life. They just, they want him to be Maverick. They need Cruz to be Maverick. Of course, of course. And and the best so the best part from you know according to Bauer at least is because they stick it to China by <laughs> by putting the flags on the jacket. Back to Carrington. In fact, we often come to see our principles and the documents expressing them through the lens of the American story. We understand the Gettysburg Address through a movie like Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. We consider King's I Have a Dream through Selma. We view the Declaration of Independence through the life story told in HBO's acclaimed John Adams miniseries. Americans demand more of their films, and there's a particular joy in knowing oneself and one's country better by watching the stories of the local and national polity unfold on the silver screen. They want this tale told properly, not avoiding the wrong, but justly celebrating the good. Hollywood should take note. It would mean higher receipts at the domestic box office, but more importantly, it would mean the betterment of the country. We'd get a better sense of history from Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. I'm running out of words for Carrington at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Carrington is on to something when he talks about America's fascination with historical dramas, specifically those that tell American stories. We, we, we definitely cannot get enough of them. Some of the most consistently high-grossing blockbusters of all time are historical dramas. At the top of the list, adjusted for inflation, is always Gone with the Wind. In 2020 dollars... Gone with the Wind has earned an incredible $3.7 billion since its release in 1939. Now, obviously, there are movies that have grossed a lot of money faster than Gone with the Wind did, but it is still earning money. And because we live in a, this perpetual culture war that doesn't seem like it's ever going to end, during the... Uh, uh, around 2017, there were some different attitudes that were, that were developing a long-running Gone with the Wind festival that had been taking place in Memphis for something like 17 years decided to stop showing the movie. The And that's 2017. And then, of, of course, during the summer of 2020, uh, after the, the murder of George Floyd, many different online streaming platforms, Including and I think Netflix. specifically it was, it, it was HBO Max that was the one that had was currently streaming Gone with the Wind, 
pulled it from its uh, from its online catalog. The response from Christian conservatives specifically was that this was a cancellation of this time-honored film. Then they responded by buying up copy after copy from Amazon, making it a bestseller uh, for, for quite a long time after it was pulled. And then it was put back on HBO Max, but this time with commentary explaining the historical context. And I think that that's important too. It's not something that's a fixture in a public square, like a Confederate statue or a statue to a Confederate general. Those need to be removed because when we put things in front of people and up on pedestals, literally, and in the middle of parks or in front of government buildings, then we're telling everybody, we're broadcasting to everyone that this is an important person that we should all pay attention to. It is a symbol of our values. That well, that's is what, what we're saying. That's, that, that's the implication. Regardless of what the plaque says, the implication is that this is an important person. We don't need to destroy those things necessarily because I don't believe in obliterating history. I don't believe in destroying all the copies of Gone with the Wind or something like that. But it's not a statue in a public square. It can stay on a streaming service or something like that. And the addition of commentary explaining the historical context is incredibly important. And those Confederate statues, you know, while we're at it, put them in a museum. They don't have to be up in front of everybody. There's no reason for that whatsoever. Just put them in a museum. They can all go to the same place. Similarly, for this podcast, there have been so many original texts that I have had the great benefit of being able to read that are written by horrific people saying horrific things. And I am really appreciative that I've had the benefit of being able to read those things online. It doesn't mean that we yeah. have to celebrate them, but no. it does mean that they should continue to exist and be available for people to see what they were all about, even if nothing else than for research. Obviously, Carrington never mentions Gone with the Wind specifically, but he does talk about Americans' fascination with historical dramas. And that movie, which starred Clark Gable and <clears throat> Clark Gable and Vivian Lee as Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara, it's incredibly popular. And it tells the story of an overprivileged daughter of a slave-owning cotton plantation owner and how her plans to find a husband are torched by the opening of the American Civil War. Then without their slaves, the O'Haras are finally forced to work for a living and pick their own cotton. After the slaves are freed, a couple of household slaves did remain because they just loved their masters so much. <laughs> I mean, this is, it's, it's a terrible portrayal. It's ridiculous. It's totally absurd. It, again, it's the same message over and over that, that, that a lot of sort of Southern apologists try to push, which is that for many slaves, they really enjoyed captivity because they didn't have to think about what they were going to do next or where they were going to get fed. It's absolutely ludicrous to assume that any human being would see the world that way. But that's what you need to do when you're being in, inhumanely cruel to someone, or in this case, an entire people, and still be able to sleep at night. Because not everybody just, you know, I, I'm sure not everybody was out there to just be cruel the entire time to every slave they saw. But they all, you know, there were a lot of people that just, that wanted to make an excuse for it, that it was somehow justified. There was a narrative immediately afterwards that, that suggested actually for a, quite a while afterwards that they were better off in captivity. Oh, and that they wanted to the, be slaves. Because, oh, well, they were, everything was provided. And the problem with this portrayal isn't that these events are historically inaccurate because 
there probably were more than a few Southern aristocrats who saw themselves as victims of this Northern aggression. And I'm sure many Southerners still do. Obviously, we talk about them. The problem is that the film never sees itself. It never reflects on the way these events are portrayed. It never questions the, the legitimacy of those aristocratic complaints. The end of legalized slavery in the southern states is just a plot device to tell the real will-they-won't-they they story of Rhett and Scarlet's could-be romance. They do finally get married. <laughs> <laughs> and then he commits marital rape. What a, what a sweetheart moment. Yeah, you can see why the movie's so popular. It's not that slavery is defended in the movie, it's that it and its consequences are almost completely ignored. In fact, Butterfly McQueen, the actress who portrayed one of the O'Hare's enslaved housemaids, was unable to attend the premiere of the film because it was held in a whites-only theater. I don't think we need more patriotic films. I think we have plenty. So you can put me in that, uh, in one of those far-right categories on the survey results. <laughs> Not, they already not tell right us, ring, right on the actual survey itself, where it yeah, was listing the Yeah, thanks for that clarification. <laughs> <laughs> Those patriotic films tell us who our enemies are and who are our friends. They teach us which fights are just and which causes are pointless. We don't need more movies telling us what our principles should be. While the U.S. Department of War, I am emphasizing their old name here, Provides military equipment to high-budget Hollywood films in exchange for editorial influence. Carrington just doesn't see enough jingoism in the film. What he wants, like the current reactionary push for a sanitary narrative of U.S. history that's entirely divorced from reality, is for a front of fiction that promotes an America that's had a few little slips here and there and does its best to do better, as if it was a well-meaning misguided teenager in a 1980s young adult film. The reality is that U.S. history is packed with genocide, racism, imperialism, sexism, homophobia, and so forth. That is the history of the U.S., and everything in between is a struggle against these dominant trends. That's why Carrington highlights the exceptions, notably exceptions that are popular among those who want to justify the glory of excellent institutions, such as Dr. Martin Luther King or the Gettysburg Address. He doesn't mention Malcolm X saying, by any means necessary. He doesn't mention the Japanese internment camps or the Indian schools. Obviously, Carrington's going to like movies like Sergeant York. It's the story of a farmer who finds Jesus, becomes a teetotaler, and then turns into a hero in World War I. After he gets over the idea that the Old Testament first commandment prohibits killing. It really just prohibits killing that you want to do. <laughs> following orders, though, is just following orders. Coincidentally released just before the Imperial Japanese attack on the U.S.'s Pearl Harbor naval base in Hawaii, Sergeant York rode the new wave of World War II patriotism to box office success. There were reports that young men left the theater after seeing the movie and went directly to a military recruiter to enlist. It is curious, though, in a surprising, not surprising sort of way, that Carrington mentions Sergeant York, but skips over the very successful All Quiet on the Western Front, released a decade or so earlier in 1930. It might be because it takes the German perspective in World War I and has a very different view of trench warfare than Sergeant York's. Western Front doesn't find any heroes on the battlefield. It only has the survivors and the dead. Its message about the pointlessness of that war, maybe any war, is in complete opposition to Sergeant York's, who would more than happily die for his country. We don't need more patriotic movies. We don't need more movies that tell us how things are. 
What we need are films that challenge us. More films that are made with conscience. They'll do terrible at the box office. <laughs> but, but more importantly, we'll all be better for them having been made. Thank you for listening to another episode of Wetwired. If you'd like to support the show and get access to our growing back catalog of premium episodes, you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash wetwired. You can also find us on Twitter at wetwiredpod and also now excitingly on Instagram at wetwiredpod. <laughs> it's happening. I'm going to start running our Instagram account. Though I may very quickly turn that over to you, Jules. <laughs> oh yeah, and I and I might I might even start a uh, a TikTok for us pretty soon. So the the Instagram thing had entirely to do with that conversation with the with Hannah, the co-host of the True Crime Tea Hour, because she asked where I could find the show, and then I, and I said that we were on Twitter, and she said, "Oh, we don't have a Twitter account for our show." And then I said, well, where, where, where can I find yours? And she said, on Instagram. And I said, oh, well, we don't have an Instagram account for our show. <laughs> I said, I literally snatched up the, 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 the username and just abandoned it immediately afterward. So <laughs> it's there. It has a profile picture. I sent out follow requests. So there is, our, there is absolutely zero content, but you can find us there. I don't know what the response time is going to be for... Instagram messages, uh, you're much better off trying to get in touch with us through Twitter. I will take terrible photos and run them through the worst filters no, every time. No, we are not doing any of that. We're nothing. <laughs> Actually, what I'm imagining is that basically like any pictures that we come across when we're researching our, uh, when we're researching an episode that we could just add those pictures to the Instagram. Just, oh, that would be actually pretty good. Them. So it'd be like each of the, you know, each <gasps> time we're sharing. We should add some photos from from the Air Nazi episode. Exactly. We we have we we have uh, Ernst Zundel pictures that we collected. We have screenshots that we've gathered for various things that we've saved in our in our show notes, and that we don't show to anybody else for you know for really no reason. We just haven't. And yeah, so we can start sharing all that stuff there. We have content. <laughs> All right. Until next time. Later, skater. May God bravely, nobly, ever forward, realizing that there is no other duty now but to save the father. Oh! How are you, Paul? Glad to see you, Professor. You come at the right moment, Palmer. Just at the right moment. And as if to prove all I have said, here is one of the first to go. A lad who sat before me on these very benches, who gave up all to serve in the first year of the war. One of the iron youth who have made Germany invincible in the field. Look at him, sturdy and bronzed and clear-eyed, the kind of soldier every one of you should envy. Oh, lad, you must speak to them. You must tell them what it means to serve your fatherland. No, no, I can't tell them anything. You must, Paul. Just a word. Just tell them how much they're needed out there. Tell them why you went, what it meant to you. I 
can't say anything. If you remember some deed of heroism, some touch of nobility, tell about it. I can't tell you anything you don't know. We live in the trenches out there. We fight. We try not to be killed. Sometimes we are. That's all. No. No, Paul. I've been there. I know what it's like. That's not what one dwells on, Paul. I heard you in here reciting that same old stuff, making more iron men, more young heroes. You still think it's beautiful and sweet to die for your country, don't you? We used to think you knew. But the first bombardment taught us better. It's dirty and painful to die for your country. When it comes to dying for your country, it's better not to die at all. There are millions out there dying for their country. What good is it? You asked me to tell them how much they're needed out there. He tells you, go out and die. Oh, but if you'll pardon me, it's easier to say go out and die than it is to do it. 